Don't cry because it's over. Smile because it happened. And Eva, that is truly how I feel about Spare. I know, Allie. I know. Sure, the news cycle has moved on, but we haven't. No, we're still talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) So all the headlines seem to have focused on Harry's issue with his family, like his brother pushing him over into a dog bowl and his stepmom trading fake stories about him. But all that stuff is not what interests us. Oh, heck no. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that what you and I liked best about Spare is how it corroborated some pretty esoteric facts about the royals. Things that you and I have picked up over the years. For example, Princess Margaret was so scary that she scared her own family, among other things. Yeah, so you're not alone out on that limb. Today, we're going to do an extremely niche Windsors and Losers analysis of what we think oh no, to be the juiciest bit of information from Spare. Yeah, people were maybe focusing on the big, explosive, sensational headline-grabbing details, but I think you and I can make the argument that some of the most telling details were the ones that were buried amidst all those sensational stories. We are here to offer nothing else except between-the-lines readings that confirm our preconceptions. <laughs> and that's, that's an important point to make. Yes. Confirmation <laughs> bias. I'm Allie Marriott. And I'm Eva Walchover. And this is Windsors and Losers, the podcast that takes a look at a different, lesser-known story about the British royal family in every episode. All right, let's dive in like Charles into his nightly bubble bath, shall we? Yes, I'll turn down my wireless, just like Charles has to do it every time he wants to have a conversation. <laughs> so let's talk about what we'll talk about. First, we're going to talk about Charles. Harry gives a lot of inside information about, shall we say, the more sensitive side of his father. And then second, what it's like to be royal in general. I think Harry says some of the things that you're not supposed to say about being royal almost inadvertently, but those did not pass us by. And then finally, Harry's random musings about random people in his family. Okay, section one, King Charles. Eva, everything that we know about Charles, we put together from things we've read over the years, like interviews he's given. The Dimbleby book that we just covered. Exactly. So when Prince Harry spoke about his dad, this was one of the most reliable sources on record, giving us more bits of information that we can cobble together to make an impression of a man of like legitimate historical importance. Harry has a couple sections in here when he talks about being at Balmoral, which royal aficionados will know is their private estate in Scotland, where the queen liked to spend the whole month of August. And it's really one of her favorite places. Queen Victoria bought it. It's like, in fact, I've been there and there's a lot of like tartan carpets and it looks very austere in a glorious setting. It's the off-duty royal house. It's like where they go to really just be a family and be together. Yes. And if you've watched The Crown, you know, that's where they go to haze both new members of the family and political figures. So So Harry describes what his dad does there. So this is what Harry says. He says, open the wrong door and you might burst in on Pa while his valet, valet, valet was helping you dress. (laughs) I know I need my Downton Abbey uh, vocab here. Worse, (laughs) you might blunder in as he was doing his headstands. Prescribed by his physio, these exercises were the only effective remedy for the constant pain in Pa's neck and back. Old polo injuries, mostly. He performed them daily in just a pair of boxers, propped against a door, or hanging from a bar like a skilled acrobat. If you set one little finger on the knob, you'd hear him begging from the other side, no, no, don't open. Please, God, don't open. I love that because it suggests that even Charles knows that the image of him 
upside down in just a pair of boxers, which by the way, I hope they're tartan, um, <laughs> would be shocking and alarming for whoever walks in on him. This kind of harkens to one of the lesser known aspects of Charles's personality, which is his love for new age remedies. He loves a holistic remedy. He and Camilla go to this health retreat in India often. So he's definitely one who tries to cobble together different methodologies to enhance his well-being. And this is just so, it's an anecdote that sums up a lot of things about him. It's also, though, in keeping with what I've always read about Philip, which is he would do that daily morning exercise um, (laughs) where he would go through like a a full body, but very quick full body workout, push-ups, pull-ups, and they're, they're really into exercising in their bedrooms. Um, I think that makes sense, I guess. They probably have so many and they're probably quite big. I guess it's like a military, right? It's a military thing. They're also people of habit. And this second yeah. anecdote, also from Balmoral, is another anecdote about Charles, who emerges as a creature very much of routine. You know, his whole life is pretty much mapped out. But even within the day, uh, they'll probably do like a tea in the late afternoon, then bath, and then they go to dinner on the late side. So Harry writes that. At Balmoral, Charles would carry his, quote, wireless, which is what he called his portable CD player on which he liked to listen to his, quote, storybooks while soaking. Pa was like clockwork. So when we heard him in the hall, we knew it was close to eight. This is, of course, from the 90s. Harry's recounting around the time that he and William found out that their mother had died. So it's sort of like a a tragic and emotional passage. Um, But he really paints Charles as somebody who sticks to his routine. And I wonder if now he's upgraded to like uh, a Bluetooth speaker where he listens to books on tape. I would love, I like the image of him listening to Spare on audiobook around 8 p.m. <laughs> it's funny that he called them his storybooks. Um, it's very, well, I don't, we don't need to psychoanalyze it. No, we do. I mean, we're, we're wildly unqualified to psychoanalyze, <laughs> but please go ahead, analyze. There's just something so, um, childish or infantile about describing whatever you're listening to as a storybook. But the other thing that I thought was really interesting about and worth noting about that passage is that, so William at this time would have been what, around 15? Char- uh, so. Harry was 12 or 13. I guess he talks about Paul coming in to say goodnight on his way to his bath. Harry and William were having dinner on their own with their nanny um, because they would have an earlier dinner and then the grown-ups would go downstairs and have their late dinner at like 8, 8 p.m. So here are these two teenage boys and they're not allowed to have dinner with the grown-ups. They're still considered children having dinner with their nanny in the nursery. You know, um, that detail was actually lost on me. I didn't think about their age. Yeah. There are some passages where he was allowed to join the grown-ups table, but perhaps those stood out because they were the exception. Yeah. And maybe like when the whole family was together at Balmoral, it was a very formal structure. Under the Queen's reign, they did like to do things the Victorian way. So that isn't surprising. Now, Charles would also get, you know, done up for these dinners at Balmoral. And this gives us some insight into what he smells like. (laughs) Harry writes, Pa would stop by on his way to dinner. He made a show of lifting a silver dome, saying, yum, I wish I was having that, and taking a long sniff. He was always sniffing things, food, roses, our hair. He must have been a bloodhound in another life. Maybe he took all those long sniffs because it was hard to smell anything over his personal scent. 
Oh, sauvage. He'd slather the stuff on his cheeks, his neck, his shirt, flowery with a hint of something harsh like pepper or gunpowder. It was made in Paris. I've since learned that this is not the scent that Johnny Depp is the face of. He was the face of <laughs> Sauvage, which is apparently different from Oh Sauvage, which is the original Sauvage cologne. Oh Sauvage is the original? Yes. Wow. You know, it's so funny. I, he doesn't look to me like a man who is doused in cologne. French cologne to boot. Yeah. It seems like I don't, that seems so gauche or so uh, flashy in a way that the British royals aren't. I would have assumed he would do a light, you know, distribution of some sort of like Penhaligon scent, not exactly, not something from the continent. Yeah. Something that you would dab on with like a stopper. It's very confusing. The whole thing. I I know. (laughs) I'm not really one to like notice scents or do scents or even really give sense like a second thought, but this did stop me because I was like, huh, cologne. I wouldn't imagine that if I were to ever meet King Charles that I'd be struck by his scent. And I wonder if Eau Sauvage is still his signature scent or if he's moved on to something else. If you know anything about this, email us at windsorslizers at gmail.com. If you have sniffed King Charles, please recently, please let us know. <laughs> I, I also was struck by this because it does give some insight into the level of grooming that comes with his position. Like he's going to dinner with his family at their vacation house and he's done up to the nines with his cologne you know, distributed evenly all over his corporal form. Yep. He's had his bath, his soak. He's listened to his storybooks on his discman. And then he douses himself in his eau sauvage. What a night. I know. Honestly, I'm like, that's a good routine. That's a full night. And then he has to go on and eat an entire dinner after that. I'd be tired. Yeah. (laughs) If I had a bath around 8 PM, it would be lights out shortly after, but I digress. (laughs) We're in different pages of our lives. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Okay, so Ali, moving on, something that really stood out to me also from this Balmoral section, Harry notes that his father hasn't seemed happy in a long time. And then he goes into describing his father's lonely childhood, particularly when he went to Gordonston, the boarding school up north. Where Philip made him go after Philip himself had gone there. He said, Pop confessed around this time that he'd been, quote, persecuted as a boy. Granny and Grandpa, to toughen him up, had shipped him off to Gordonston, a boarding school where he was horrendously bullied. The most likely victims of Gordonston bullies, he said, were creative types, sensitive types, bookish types. In other words, Pa. His finest qualities were bait for the toughs. I remember him murmuring ominously, I nearly didn't survive. How had he? Head down, clutching his teddy bear, which he still owned years later. Teddy went everywhere with Pa. It was a pitiful object with broken arms and dangly threads, holes patched up here and there. It looked, I imagined, like Pa might have after the bullies had finished with him. Teddy expressed eloquently, better than Pa ever could, the essential loneliness of his childhood. So pause to just take in how deeply depressing that is. That's a wicked bummer, Eva. A wicked bummer. And I'm sorry to bring the mood down. (laughs) (laughs) But the reason that stood out to me, well, on a few fronts. First of all, if you remember when all those exposés and things were coming out about Prince Andrew, and one of the details that someone had noted was that he had at his rooms at Buckingham Palace on his bed, he had loads of teddy bears and he would supposedly yell at the housekeepers if they didn't make the bed and then put the teddy bears back exactly where they were supposed to be. And 
shaking my damn head. <laughs> so that raises the question, like, what is it with grown men in that family and their teddy bears? And again, not to psychoanalyze, but I guess the only conclusion we can draw is that in a childhood that was absent of a lot of close familial warmth, they really put a lot on their stuffed animals. And while most of us grow up and move away from our transitional objects, the Windsors don't. I think you hit the nail on the head. I have no formal training in psychiatry, but I do read a lot of WebMD. And I think that, yeah, they must have been surrogates for the emotional needs that weren't being met. And Harry's kind of unspecific about, does Teddy still accompany Pa? That's what I want I wonder, now that Camilla's in the mix, is she permitting the- Teddy? uh, Yeah, that Teddy accompany them wherever they go. Yeah. Um, Um, That is a very- moving section because Charles has spoken about the bullying he underwent at Gordonston too and how his family didn't do anything about it. And maybe it was almost a badge of honor to withstand that. Had he been born, say, later or in Zone 4 London or the equivalent in Brooklyn, I think he would have had a different a different go-round and been taken care of perhaps a little bit more robustly emotionally as a child. Any any um, more sh- thoughts to share on our impression of Charles from from Spare? Any more psychological, <laughs> um, hmm. wildly unqualified psychological hot takes? <laughs> yeah, I think what comes through is just Charles is so Charles. He's truly as what's the word? It's like he's so persnickety. He's so yes. himself. So himself. The more I learn about him, the more I think he really is an interesting person. He has gotten a rough treatment in the press with everything that's gone on with Diana and, of course, like being second fiddle to his mother for so many years. But these details are both humanizing and also, frankly, amusing because you see how idiosyncratic this guy has been within an institution that clearly has a very particular view of how people should behave. Yeah, especially his generation, like raised by this father that really wanted him to be this... um, you know, macho he-man, and he's just very sensitive. Section two, Harry on life as a royal. What Harry says in this book about his experience growing up as a prince, to me, stood at odds with the overall intention of the book, which was sort of to like establish Harry as an everyman on a crusade against some of the excesses of the royal family or the bad habits of the royal family. And particularly because he married an American who's basically our age. To me, I feel like Harry 2.0 is, you know, an emotional Californian who you might see across the wine bar and just like chat about your kids. But we have to remember he's he's Diana's baby. Like he didn't just fall off the apple cart. And there were some things in this book where he reveals royals. They're not just like us. Um, so what he says here stood out to me as the absolute thing you are not supposed to say as a royal. He writes, as a royal, you were always taught to maintain a buffer zone between you and the rest of creation. Even working a crowd, you always kept a discreet distance between yourself and them. Distance was right. Distance was safe. Distance was survival. Distance was also an essential bit of being royal, no less than standing on the balcony, waving to the crowds outside Buckingham Palace, your family all around you. He goes on to say that that was something that carried over to their family physically and emotionally. But to me, I'm like, okay, this is such a sordid system where this suggests to me that royals actually do think that in some way they are better than the rest of everyone, that they have to maintain distance 
of course, every public person has to be aware of safety and, you know, concerns about survival, but to actually write down that you were supposed to keep distance between you and like the rest of <laughs> the filthy humanity, <laughs> that was uh, the part I'm like, Harry, you're not supposed to say that. And yet, just to play devil's advocate here, I guess an argument could be made that the very nature of royalty is that buffer zone. Like, if not to exalt them and to look up to them as this like ordained family, then what's the point? So, in a way, the moment you do start breaking down those barriers, the more you start questioning why they exist at all. You know what I mean? Like, you almost have to create some kind of golden aura around them to justify why we have them. Well, I think that this is an interesting moment to point out. You are half British and (laughs) I'm 100% American. So to me, I'm like, yeah, you're right. Yeah. It almost like creates a loop in my head where I'm like, while I'm interested in them and I'm glad they exist for the sake of stories and analysis and all of the joy that you and I get out of kind of analyzing them. I'm glad they exist on that level. The other part of my brain's like off with their heads because the minute that Harry starts kind of this existential, I guess, question and idea that they need to break down the walls between us and them, then the minute it's almost like we we get rid of them because they shouldn't exist if they are just normal people. So Ali, on the on the kind of idea of Royals, they're not like us. They live in their palaces. They leave space between them and us. Another section that really stood out was Harry's talking about their summers at Balmoral or their vacations at Balmoral and how, you know, Balmoral, beloved country retreat of Queen Victoria, reminders of Queen Victoria everywhere from the decor to a Queen Victoria bust that sits in one of the hallways or one of the stairwells. Near Granny's lift, which pause just to acknowledge the fact that there's an elevator inside Balmoral, (laughs) (laughs) through a pair of crimson saloon doors and along a green tartan floor was a smallish staircase with a heavy iron banister. It led up to the second floor, where stood a statue of Queen Victoria. I always bowed to her as I passed. Your Majesty. Willie did too. We'd been told to, but I'd have done it anyway. I found the grandmama of Europe hugely compelling, and not just because Granny loved her, nor because Pa once wanted to name me after her husband. Mummy blocked him. Victoria knew great love, soaring happiness, but her life was essentially tragic. Her father, Prince Edward, Duke of Kent and Strathern, was said to be a sadist, sexually aroused by the sight of soldiers being horsewhipped, and her dear husband, Albert, died before her eyes. Probably should read that not laughing while I'm reading it. (laughs) That took a turn. (laughs) It certainly did. Um, Oh, the royals. There's a sadist buried under every leaf. (laughs) For our purposes, we were interested in the fact that Harry bows to a bust of his great-grandmother or like great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother, whatever she is. And he says, we've been told to. So I wonder where that instruction comes from. Is it something that you just kind of from birth know that you bow to that statue? Or was it his father who told him? Was it his nanny who told him? Who told him? And when did that start? (laughs) Yeah, details, details. So there was one revealing section in which Harry speaks about how closely Charles managed William and his wife's 
like schedule. William has in the press been accused of being work shy wills, but apparently Harry very generously says that that was obscene, grossly unfair. And that was because he was busy having children and raising a family, but he was still beholden to Pa who controlled the purse strings. He did as much as Pa wanted him to do. And sometimes that wasn't much because Pa and Camilla didn't want Willie and Kate getting loads of publicity. They didn't like Willie and Kate drawing attention from them or their causes. They'd openly scolded Willie about it many times. This was a very illuminating comment because not only does it give some context to the work shy wills narrative, but also shows the extent to which the Royals battle behind the scenes for press coverage. And I didn't include the quote here, but there was another anecdote in spare where Harry talks about the awkwardness of the holidays at Sandringham, another of their private houses where they, at the end of the year, the amount of work events that the family does are tallied up and there's always like a ranking in the newspaper of who did the most events this year and of course Anne usually comes out on top but Harry kind of shadily says like some people include a zoom meeting as one of their (laughs) engagements and it also doesn't take into the fact that like in the case for William and Kate their amount of press exposure is really closely managed by the top guy so this was interesting insight into how the whole world of royal work is organized Yeah. And that's funny about Harry making that comment about the Zoom meetings, because it shows that he's also engaging in that, even while he's throwing shade at that system, he clearly is also competitive about it. (laughs) They can't escape it. Yeah, they can't. I think my, my takeaway from the insight he's given us into the life of a Royal is that, you know, frankly, it's a mixed bag. Would you want that? No, you know, I think to me, what it, shows is a real contradiction between on the one hand rejecting the sort of like he says the games that they play behind the scenes the one-upmanship the competitiveness um I also wonder like do they also kind of get off on it I don't know (laughs) I mean that's also what's filling this book I don't know would I want it no same hard no hard no Section three, Harry lifted the lid on some widely held perceptions about his relatives that were completely glorious to see written down and have confirmed. And yes, I am talking about his impressions of Princess Margaret. (laughs) Yeah. And just before we get into it, I think that what this revealed to me is how little they actually know each other, how little he actually even seemed to know his own aunt. His great aunt, I guess. I was surprised by that. So what he says about Princess Margaret, she was my great aunt. Yes, we shared 12.5% of our DNA, yet she was almost a total stranger. Like most Britons, I mainly knew of her. Great love thwarted by the palace, exuberant streaks of self-destruction splashed across the tabloids, one hasty marriage, which looked doomed at the outset and ended up being worse than expected. Since reading this, I did share it on my TikTok at royal underscore miss for anyone who's interested. And one of the commenters said his math's wrong. It's 25%. Well, <laughs> if you're a geneticist, let us know at gmail.com. <laughs> then he goes on to say she could fill a houseplant with one scowl. Okay. We kind of thought that about Margot. Yeah. What I found interesting about this is that Harry has admitted to watching the crown 
And I almost feel like his musings on Margaret, any of us who have seen The Crown or read any books about her could make the same comments. He's almost like describing a stranger or he's describing someone he's known about through their infamous reputation um, and not, it didn't really come from a real personal place. So that was telling. It was just like, it shows how formalized some certain relationships are in that family. Do do you think that's the ghostwriter being like, let's, let's dial this up. Yeah. Harry not having a lot to give. And so they kind of have to stretch what little bits of information they have. Yeah. Like he goes on to kind of give the anecdote about one Christmas at Sandringham where they would spend Christmas together as a family. And if you've read or heard, then you know that a part of the kind of tradition of the family Christmas is to give each other these little silly, inconsequential, very cheap gifts, which it's almost like the royal family sort of pretending to masquerade as peasants by being like, isn't it jolly to like give each other a a silly little two pound gift or whatever. Yeah. It's their normal person cosplay. Yes, exactly. The whole family gathered to open gifts on Christmas Eve. As always, a German tradition that survived the anglicizing of the family surname from Saxe-Coburg, Gotha, to Windsor. We were at Sandringham in a big room with a long table covered with white cloth and white name cards. By custom, at the start of the night, each of us located our place, stood before our mound of presents, then suddenly... Everyone began opening at the same time, a free-for-all with scores of family members talking at once and pulling at bows and tearing at wrapping paper. Standing before my pile, I chose to open the smallest present first. The tag said, from Aunt Margot. I looked over, called out, thank you, Aunt Margot. I do hope you like it, Harry. Tore off the paper. It was a biro? I said, oh, a biro. Wow. Editor's note, a biro was a ballpoint pen. Uh, I said. Thank you so much. But it wasn't just any biro, she pointed out. It had a tiny rubber fish wrapped around it. I said, oh, a fish biro. Okay. I told myself, that is (laughs) cold-blooded. Allie, what's the, am I missing something there? What's the significance of the fish being wrapped around the biro? She thought the fish made the pen remarkable, but Harry did not agree. And in fact, the biro, which heretofore I thought had been pronounced biro, so thank you for teaching me that, <laughs> became a leitmotif in the book where he has to sign things and he keeps looking at ballpoint pens and it sort of becomes, it's a thing. But is there like a pun or something to do? Why a rubber fish wrapped around it? It just like, speaks to the mundanity of their gift okay. exchange and how she thought that was novel and he didn't. But Margaret he thinks was, it's cold-blooded because it's what? It's just so cheap and meaningless? It was a shitty gift. Yeah. Margaret was known, though, for giving really weird gifts. She once gave a friend a toilet brush because she had been at their house and noticed that they didn't have one. But the friend had actually hidden the toilet brush because Princess Margaret was coming over. That's so funny. I think it just in a way, a more generous interpretation of Margaret's gifts would be that she doesn't encounter these sorts of like trivial, cheap items. So for her, it's a novelty. It's like, oh, isn't this fun? I wonder too, if the ghostwriter thought, let's get some Margaret in here. He's like, Margaret? Margaret sells. Yeah. (laughs) Margaret goes viral. Let's get this. What do you know about Margaret? And he's just, well, there's this one time she gave me this weird fish pen and the guy's like, let's do it. We're putting it in there. Yeah. And by including it, then it su- suddenly gains this significance and maybe it actually isn't that significant. 
And perhaps they wanted to put Margaret in there because Harry does write or he and his ghostwriter write. We had so much in common to spares. So to kind of reconnect Harry's crusade with that of Margaret, who really is sort of like an empathetic cautionary tale of what can go wrong if a spare doesn't you know, kick out on their own. Yeah, she doesn't come off well. She rarely does come off well in, in the accounts um, when, when her family has written about her. The only way Margaret does well is in a sort of like girl boss reconceptualization where it's like, let's yeah. drink martinis at 11 a.m. Yeah, exactly. Like the crown. I feel like Vanessa Kirby's interpretation of Margaret was very much of that vein. Yes, lively. Yeah, lively, in touch with her own desires and needs her family be damned. Be damned. Harry doesn't let her off easy. No. But one person he does really have a shine to is his great-grandmother, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, who, as we've said before, is the one woman who managed to get Queen into her title twice. So she was like... (laughs) big queen energy. And Harry writes, she'd been the war queen. She'd lived at Buckingham Palace while Hitler's bombs rained from the skies. She dined with Churchill, wartime Churchill. She'd once possessed a Churchillian eloquence of her own. She was famous for saying that no matter how bad things got, she'd never ever leave England and people loved her. I loved her for it. I love my country. And the idea of declaring you'd never leave struck me as wonderful. Hmm, Prophetic. (laughs) Um, But he goes on to say, you know, there was a bit more, this was a, a queen with multiple dimensions. He says, I wish I'd asked about her husband, King George VI, who died young, or her brother-in-law, King Edward VIII, whom she'd apparently loathed. He gave up his crown for love. Gangan believed in love, but nothing transcended the crown. She also reportedly despised the woman he'd chosen. Here, he's hearkening back to some generations back drama, which was, of course, Wallace and Edward and how King George and the Queen Mother they had all this beef between them. This is an immediate precursor to Harry and Meghan versus Will and Kate and reestablishes that, you know, these inter-family bits of drama really aren't new. Yeah, and it was also reportedly the Queen Mother who was pretty insistent on Wallace and Edward not being welcomed back into the family fold. Oh, yes. Um, And so it's very, it is ironic that, like, he's expressing love and admiration for this woman who behaved quite callously towards a couple who similarly left and were quote unquote exiled from the family. Yes. King Charles and his grandmother, the queen mother were very close. The queen mother was one of the only people who gave Charles emotional support in his childhood. So they were incredibly close, but in simultaneously showing this reverence for his great grandmother, Harry brings it back to the narrative he's trying to advance here. Like family strife isn't new. People do things for love. You can still love your country, but have this inter interfamily strife. And my interpretation of this moment is that it also revealed that again, like with Margaret, how little he actually knew her. He he kind of admires her from afar and talks about how I wish I'd asked her about this. I'd wish I'd asked her about that. I never did. I wonder if, if again, that's the ghost writer sort of trying to excavate some stories about her from Harry and Harry being like, you know what? I didn't actually really know her that well, but she seemed like a cool older lady. That is such a good point. This this one anecdote is imbued with a lot of significance, but it's really like, you don't have a lot to go on with your great grandma, huh? No. Although he does say <laughs> that night, they were talking about Ollie G and he taught her how to say Booyakasha. So that's bonding. <laughs> Mm, touching. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, there was also one 
time. He didn't mention his aunt Anne a lot, but do you have an aunt Anne, by the way? No. Oh, I do. I just wondered if that was like a universal thing or it's just a <laughs> universal aunt name. <laughs> it's just me and Harry. Um, <laughs> anyway, so this anecdote comes from when Harry goes to Balmoral after the Queen's death. And there was so much press coverage about this. We know that the royals kind of did Harry dirty here where they didn't invite him on the communal charter chat and they didn't want Megan to come, blah, blah, blah. But when he arrives, Anne is the only person who's credited with showing him any kindness. He says, hunched against the cold, I hurried into the foyer. Aunt Anne was there to greet me. I hugged her. Where's Pa and Willie and Camilla? Gone to Burke Hall, she said. She asked if I wanted to see Granny. Yes, I do. She led me upstairs to Granny's bedroom. So not only was Anne the only one there to greet him, who he actually hugged, and just side note, the idea of hugging Anne is like, bony? (sighs) And not only did his family not greet him, but they weren't even there. His immediate family wasn't there. So that just paints such a sympathetic portrait of Anne, who does have good relationships with her kids and seems to be, yeah, like a human. Yeah, I think what really stands out there is that like Anne has this reputation for being very no-nonsense, being quite withering when she wants to. And it's interesting that it was Anne who famously really like is incredibly loyal to the monarchy, the institution, to the reputation of the family. She's the one that like welcomed him. I think what we're trying to say is we're hashtag team Anne. (laughs) All right, Allie, we've reached the end of our book report on (laughs) Bear. And I think it wouldn't be a true episode of Windsors and Losers if we didn't move on to our Windsors and Losers section of the show. So Allie, what do you think this tells us about the royal family? I think it tells us that you and I are both really good students of history. Nothing in here really surprised me, but it was nice to have confirmation. And um, yeah, frankly, I just like to have some of my preconceptions corroborated with what I believe are facts. In this <laughs> what about you, Eva? What did this teach you about the royal family? Yeah, I think that what this tells me about the royal family is, one, that it's full of the kind of everyday mundane dramas that every family has full of the hurts and the slights and the resentments and also full of the sweet touching moments. And really my big takeaway from reading Spare exceptional royal family stuff aside is that this is a pretty run-of-the-mill tale of a family like any other. Who would you say is the Windsor? Okay, I think it's got to be the queen from beyond the grave because (laughs) she had her own elevator at Balmoral. That is posh. That's living. What about you? In this case, the winner is me. I'm just going to say it. This (laughs) gave me a lot of information that I wanted. There were sumptuous little details, many of which we didn't even touch on here. And I just loved it. I loved it to bits. Anyway, who do you think is the loser? I'm going to say the other publishing houses that aren't Random House because it sounds like they missed out on pretty good seller. The publishing event of the millennium? Yes. <laughs> I don't think that's going too far. Okay, Allie, loser. 
Uh, the loser honestly was me too, because I wanted more. <laughs> and Harry did at one point say that there's like an additional 400 pages that got cut and I want those 400 pages. So, um, I'm ready for the sequel. Okay. Part two. Um, what will that one be called? <laughs> Sparer. Well, Eva, shall we do this again next week? I would love to do this again next week. Fabulous. See you then. Bye. Windsors and Losers is created and produced by us, Eva Walchover and Allie Merriam. Our episode was mixed by Kristen Muller. Give us your feedback at windsorslosers.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>